Welcome to the Pod 20, the countdown of the top 20 podcasts in the world right now. I'm Graham Mack, and this week's guest is the journalist and presenter Mike Parry. He currently hosts a couple of podcasts, Brazil and Porky and Planet Porky. I remember my father telling me that the whole of Britain started to hate Mickey Rooney the day he got off the Queen Mary, you know, at Southampton. And he came strolling down the gangplank, you know. And, and all the guys in our profession in those days had these huge box cameras, oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And was be standing there, you know, with a pencil and, and, and an notepad, you know. Uh, uh, hey, Mickey! Yeah. Hey, Mickey, you know, uh, how's things in Hollywood? And he apparently stopped, looked at them and answered... I am Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and from that moment on, everybody in this country hated him because he, he was so arrogant. Mike Parry on the way soon, and we'll also hear from friend of the show, Dom Jolly. This is Podcast Radio's countdown of the top 20 podcasts in the world right now based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co. UK. Into the chart now, let's start at number 20 with Frank Skinner's poetry podcast. Frank loves poetry, thinks you might like it too, but he's dropped to number 20 from last week's number 6. At 19, it's Desert Island Discs. You know how it works. Every week, a guest castaway is marooned on a virtual desert island and tells us which eight pieces of music, a book and a luxury item they take with them. Now, in the history of the show, I still think the best ever luxury item was what John Peel decided to take, and that was a motorway service area. At 18, it's Planet Porky with Mike Parry. Mike is my Zoom guest this week. Mike, a lot of people will know you as a journalist and a presenter on TalkSport, but you were also the press officer at the FA for a little bit. How did that happen? My mate David Davis, who was a reporter on the BBC in the Northwest for many years, I knew him from up there. I'd, I'd kind of met him, you know, in my formative years. He'd been appointed director of communications at the FA. He needed, you know, a press officer, somebody who could handle. And I knew all the lads in Fleet Street because I'd been dealing with them for the last 10, 15 years. And I went there basically to help him out for a few weeks while he was getting settled in because there wasn't a press office. And I stayed a year. And it was a year of fantastic stories. You know, it was all about Paul Merson getting done for uh, having a cocaine habit. There were allegations against Bruce Grobelar for taking bribes to throw games, which he always contested, of course. There was the whole Terry Venable saga, you know, old El Tell, you know, and, you know, pulling a fast one here and there. There was George Graham accused of acquiring money through means that weren't altogether straightforward. Again, George Graham had a, a big defence against that one. There was the Eric Cantona incident at Crystal Palace, the Kung Fu kick. I mean, it was a very, very busy year, but PR was never my thing. I only intended to stay for a few weeks, maybe, I don't know, months or whatever like that. But after a year, and I found myself getting embedded, I took the opportunity to get out when uh, another Fleet Street colleague of mine, Paul Potts, took over the Press Association and asked me to go over there to basically try and not tabloidize the Press Association, which is a fantastic institution known for its accuracy and its uh, trustworthiness, but to bring it down from the level of it just doing court circulars for the royals, bit of high court, bit of parliament. He wanted to expand it to doing real stories, you know, like the newspapers did, to compete with them. And that's what we did. 
You're also a best-selling author. You've written three books now? Well, the best-selling author bit came to me when I wrote a book called There's an Awful Lot of Bubbly in Brazil. Yeah. Now, that's Alan Brazil's life story, and I feature in that quite a lot because it kind of really, the, the, the main body of it was him and I working together at TalkSport. Al had a fantastic football career. I wouldn't recommend anybody to write a footballer's book in those days because before the internet, I mean, a lot of these footballers can't remember half the games they played in. They really can't. They played in so many. And Al liked to drink. And, uh, you know, there were often gaps in the memory of when things had happened and where they'd happened and all that kind of stuff. It was a torturous book, but we dedicated ourselves to it. We got it all out and it became a bestseller, um, sold well over 100,000 copies. And that, from that, we wrote a second one called Both Barrels from Brazil. That sold about about half that number of the of the first one. And I wrote a book called Rooney Tunes before the 2006 World Cup in Germany, which I think would have been a bestseller. It, it was it was a, a it was a great book on Wayne Rooney, but completely off the wall. You know about Wayne Rooney's earning power, about Wayne Rooney's childhood, about. Wayne Rooney's ratings in the world against other young players like Ronaldo, because, of course, he'd had a fantastic 2004 in Portugal, in Lisbon. But sadly, he broke his metatarsal and therefore was, even in his own admission, which he wrote in his column in the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago, he became a bit part player at that tournament. What did you leave out of one of the books, either a book about Rooney or a book about Alan Brazil? Is there anything story you couldn't put in the book? No, I don't think so. There was no holds barred then, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't write a book on the basis of putting out. I mean, uh, a major part of Alan Brazil's book was the fact that I had to fire him because I was the boss. I wasn't just the co-host on the breakfast show talks. Well, I was the program director. And Al was ill-disciplined in those days. You know, he was a... Al's a very free spirit. Uh, great broadcaster, terrific working colleague, but a free, free spirit. And, you know, if, if Al didn't turn up for a show, we, we'd have a problem. We'd have to get to grips with that. I'm the only person who ever sacked Al in Brazil because I had to. We were very straightforward with each other. But within 10 days, we had a problem with the fact that the listeners liked Al a lot. And one of the reasons they liked him was because of the nature of his free spirit and his ability to broadcast when, you know, he was in a very convivial and jovial mood. And when that went, so did some of the audience. So we had to get him back. So how did the conversation originally go then when you sacked him? Well, he, he was suspended anyway because we had to come back from Cheltenham on a Thursday and do a show on Friday, a morning show, breakfast show. And the big guest on that show was Ken Bates, the Chelsea gem. Al didn't turn up on the Friday. And Ken came in. And I tell you what, Ken gave us half a dozen stories which led the national newspapers over the rest of the weekend. He, he, you know, he was very open about everything, about administration and football, run-ins he had with players, run-ins he had with managers, his views on crowd control, hooligans, all that kind of stuff, you know. Kept the papers going all over the weekend. Al didn't turn up. I did it myself. Al got suspended. For not turning up? Yeah, yeah. He, he, he had a, a horror journey back from Cheltenham that morning, you know, for all sorts of reasons. Ran out of petrol and... You know, he couldn't find a hotel the night before. He was in a little village in the Cotswolds in the middle of nowhere. All that kind of stuff. So Al did what he always does. He just shot off on holiday. Took the skis, went skiing in Switzerland. I had to ring him. Found him in a hotel at the top of the Alps somewhere. I had to say, look, mate, it's all over. I can't get you back. The board just decided they'd had enough. And so that was it. But it didn't last long, fortunately.
More with my Zoom guest Mike Parry soon. Let's get back to the chart and we're up to number 17, which is Fake Doctors Real Friends with Zach and Donald. Zach Bramph and Donald Faison, they start together in Scrubs. They're real life best friends and their podcasts uh, features behind the scenes stories from the show and their special guests. And number 16, it's a recommendation. A Tale of Two Hygienists. Uh, yeah, two real-life dental hygienists, Michelle Strange and Andrew Johnson. And it's been recommended by podcast radio listener Brittany Duncan. Thanks for the recommendation, Brittany. She says they cover so much more than dental health. They also talk about whole body health and topics such as suicide prevention, child abuse, human trafficking, and how it's related to dentistry. If you would like to recommend a podcast, go to thepodcastradio.co.uk. Even if it's about dental hygiene, I, I, I'm one of these people. I'm not that bothered about the dentist. It doesn't freak me out like it does for some. But the hygienist, I can't stand. And the reason is, they tell me off. They tell me I'm not flossing right, and I'm not cleaning inside the front bottom teeth and now i'm paying the hygienist to clean just clean my teeth back to the chart number 15 earworm from dom jolly listen to dom make phone calls to call centers helplines even radio call-in shows no one's safe dom is a friend of the show and on zoom you were a musician before trigger happy tv did that help well i think musician is pushing it i was a singer <laughs> in the band. okay i had a cowbell solo uh, which even then I got out of time. But I just, I've always been into music. I mean, I was always more into music. And actually, I was more excited about putting the, the just specific moments on Trigger Happy than doing the actual jokes. And I was in a band. I've made pop videos since. I've directed for Ian Brown and stuff. I, I just, music is my first love. But unfortunately, I just have no real talent in it. I mean, I can sort of sing, but it was never going to happen, really. I got booted out of the band for musical differences, which I think was code for your shit so you know it was fine <laughs> well, your drummer was involved in the editing though wasn't he yeah he was that was very good research yeah so the band was called hang david and dave was my oldest friend and then he he and i both got jobs at mtv as runners and i left to go off to be a diplomat as you do and he stayed and so by the time i sort of had gone through being a diplomat and then a political journalist and then came back to doing trigger happy David kind of got up and become this editor. One of the problems with an editor, especially if you don't know them and you don't know what you're doing, which we didn't, is you kind of say, can you try and do this? And then they noodle away for ages and then they play it and it's just shit. And then you have to go, oh, you know, and you sort of hedge around it. But because I knew Dave, I could just say, Dave, that is crap. And he wouldn't take offense and we wouldn't take offense. And also because he was a drummer, he just had a natural beat. So he totally understood that Trigger Happy was about cutting on the beat. So for instance, normally you'd make a show and then chuck music on it. I'd find a track I wanted to use and then I'd extend a joke so that it wouldn't cut the, 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 you know, it was all, it was the music led it rather than the comedy, if you see what I mean. So it was so important. And it's why it was terrible when we sold Trigger Happy abroad, they'd just take the music off and dump a library soundtrack on. And you just, it doesn't work like that. You know, it was cut to the beat, but you know, it was so much fun. It was great. The Americans did it, but you didn't like that version of it. I haven't seen any of it. How bad was it? I sold it to 80 countries and everyone, we had to put this kind of shit soundtrack on, apart from Germany, who bought the entire soundtrack. And it cost more. I mean, it cost, I think it was like 
22 grand just to use the title theme. And I was using 20 tracks a show. So it was a massive buy, but they did that. And America MTV offered to buy it, but without the original music. And I said, no. And then I moved to the BBC and I thought, and Comedy Central wanted to buy it. And I thought better that than nothing. So they bought it with the shit music, but then they commissioned an American version. And that's when... I should have maybe gone to America, but I just had kids. I didn't really want to go to America. So I ended up exec producing that and went out and did a couple of bits for it. And then I saw what they were doing and it was so bad. It was like random slow-mo, some fluffy animals. I mean, it was like a spoof. It was so bad, but it was good. I mean, you know, it's it's life really. Well, does it bother you that as a best-selling author and a travel writer and a presenter and a columnist and a comedian, you're best known as the bloke with the big phone? Well, it's weird. I mean, I'm very thrilled to do something that has got, you know, I mean, it is part of the national psyche. When that ringtone goes off, I know people think of me. Am I proud that my catchphrase is hello? Not really. I I suppose what annoys me the most is actually the big mobile was my least favourite part of Trigger Happy. I mean, I used to put it before the titles because actually most of Trigger Happy was quite sad and it was about me having a nervous breakdown or running away and beautiful moments. And that was a big shouty thing. So interesting thing about the mobile was even if you hadn't seen Trigger Happy, you'd know about the mobile. So no, I'm not sad about it. Um, I just wish I'd, I'd, I never really thought about being a comedian. So, you know, I did Trigger Happy and then I thought, now I want to do these other things. I want to be a travel writer. I want to do all that stuff. And I suppose if I'd had just focused on being a comedian, it's that 10,000 hours thing. If you've done 10,000 hours at something, you become amazing or whatever. You know, I would have gone off to America and done it. But no, I've, I've loved every second of my life, I have to say. So no. The show did, though, originally take its toll on, on your mental health, didn't it? I think I already had <laughs> dodgy mental health. I grew up in a war in Lebanon. Yeah, you know, mentally I was not very stable. I had a very bad, my parents had a bad divorce. And I had panic attacks a lot in my 20s. And then they went away. I mean, I was a goth, you know, it's par for the course. And then, yeah, just when we were making Trigger Happy, about a week before we finished filming the first series, and I was literally, I had no idea what I was going to do in my life. And suddenly I'm 29 and I'm like, holy crap, I'm making this. I knew it was a good show. Like we could feel it was amazing. And I remember the very sketch we were filming. I was dressed as the Dutch tourist outside Sloan Square Tube. And I just got in a cab and the cab said, where, where are you going, mate? And I said, my egg must be boiled and just talking nonsense to him. And I got out of the cab. We'd done this sketch. And I said to Sam, oh, I don't feel well. He said, what? I go, I just don't know. I went home and I went home and just lay in bed for three weeks with just crippling depression. And it got to the extent where insurance said, if you don't come back in two days, the whole show will be, you know, we can't pay for it. And I remember thinking, I've got to this stage and literally this depression is going to take take it away from me. It wasn't depression. It was sort of hyper, I don't know. It, it was in a form of depression. So, yeah, it was terrible. I started taking uh, antidepressants and changed my life. I mean, people sort of talk about how bad antidepressants are. And I'm sure they are for some people. And some people got really bad side effects. But for me, just never had anything since and just changed my life and made my life, you know, workable. It was amazing. I mean, possibly it's dimmed the madness i think there's an element of madness and an instability that if you have it really bad one way it gives you a creative side on the other and i always think that's why if you're very normal and stable and dull well you see i say dull you probably have a very happy life but you're not very artistic so i think possibly the antidepressants have slightly stemmed my madness 
and creativity. But I don't know. But it means I'm not weeping all the time, so it's good. It's the Pod 20 on Podcast Radio. I'm Graham Mack, counting down the top 20 podcasts in the world right now based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Coming up, more from my special Zoom guest, Mike Parry. I want to find out why he's got that weird nickname. Find out from Mike in a little bit. Hey, talking of recommendations, number 14 on the chart is a recommendation. It's the Idea Fountain with Julie Pilot. This one's been recommended by podcast radio listener Corey Zekman. He says it's some of the best interviews he's ever listened to. Julie is a music industry executive and talks to inspiring people from all walks of life. You want to recommend a podcast? Well, then do it. Thepodcastradio.co.uk. At number 13, True Spies. Hayley Atwell narrates true stories from the real spies behind the world's greatest espionage operations. Fascinating podcast, this one. At number 12, the Adam Buxton podcast. The comedian Adam Buxton, he has a ramble chat with interesting people. His latest one, he talks to Louis Theroux. I got a feeling that Louis Theroux may appear on the chart a little bit later on. Back to this week's Zoom guest. It's Mike Parry. He's a journalist and former presenter on TalkSport. He's got a podcast called Planet Porky. Mike, why are you known as the Porkmeister? Well, that came from working with Alan Brazil for 20 years. And uh, in about the second year that we were working on it, he, uh, he accused me of putting on too much weight. I mean, talk about you know, the pot, kettle and black situation, right? You've seen all <laughs> yeah. these, uh, these days. Looks more like a planet. And he had a go at me and uh, he eventually said, the trouble with you is, uh, Mike, you're getting too porky. And it just looked like that forever now. So it's just the, you know, porky party turned into porkmeister and that's it. And that's why the, uh, the podcast is called Life on Planet Porky. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that blends quite nicely. And we started doing stage shows, Life on Planet Porky is a nice presentation, you know. So uh, it, it's a nice fit and, and people have known me as that for so many years now. It's a suitable branding, I suppose. And you do the podcast with Leslie Ann Jones, author and journalist. Why did you choose Leslie Ann? It's not a question of choosing. Leslie Ann and I have been Fleet Street friends, colleagues for maybe 30 years, you know. I always knew that she was a, like a, a top journalist. There isn't a rock star in this world that Leslie Ann Jones hasn't at some time sat down with, interviewed, written about, gone to America to visit. When she was writing a book, and she bumped into David Bowie. She wrote a book three or four years ago. And David Bowie just offered her his uh, villa on Montserrat in the Caribbean to spend a few months writing her book. That's how well she is in with the pop scene. Freddie Mercury was a close friend of hers, the late Freddie Mercury, Brian May of, uh, of Queen. There, honestly, there isn't a pop star in this world that uh, she hasn't been in touch with and got a story about. So when we go through the podcast and, you know, there's a fascination of, uh, in, in rock stars from the 70s and 80s, even the 60s. They're all becoming 80 now, but they're living longer. And she's mixed with them all. So she's got a host of great stories. She's writing a book about John Lennon at the minute, isn't she? book about John Lennon's finished now. The manuscript's done. Oh, it's finished. I think it's out about August because it, it goes with an awful lot of anniversaries. So it's primarily to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Lennon's death, which, of course, was December 1980. But it also, this year, signifies Lennon's 80th birthday, which I think is October. That's why it's coming out in sort of August, September. 
It's 60 years since the Beatles were formed and 50 years since the Beatles split. So you've got a 50, 60, 40, 50, 60 and 80th anniversary. I'm sure it'll be a great book. I'm sure it will. Let's talk about you then and uh, how you got here. You grew up in the Northwest, Chester. Yeah. How did you end up becoming a tabloid journalist in London? What was the journey there? I got into newspapers by mistake because I was at uh, the University of the Trent, okay, doing, believe it or not, urban estate management, which basically is kind of real estate because my dad was an estate agent, okay? And I didn't really fancy it. I never liked figures and all that kind of stuff. Sadly, my old fella died. I didn't really want to go on with it. My heart wasn't in it. And I literally walked into my local paper, the Chester Chronicle, after the first year at university and basically asked for a job. And I was very, very lucky. The selection procedure was so long and drawn out, but somebody dropped out and I just got in. I was very lucky. Went to do a course in Newcastle upon time. That gave me access to working on the evening paper in Newcastle. It's all I ever wanted to do. And then from working on evening papers in Newcastle and Birmingham, I wanted to work on a national newspaper. I got a job on the Express in Manchester and then in Fleet Street. Then I became the New York man and I was embedded in newspapers. I became the news editor of the Express and then assistant editor. Then I became the executive editor of other papers in Fleet Street. And it was all newspaper go. And then the newspaper industry started slowing down. And I was the luckiest man in the world to get out when I did 20 years ago when the opportunity came to join talk radio as a journalist who had a lot to say, but nowhere really to say it, you know, at the time, because I'd, you know, been like exec editing all over the place. And, and it started like that and grew. We'll talk about talk radio a bit more later. You worked at The Sun as well, didn't you? When were you there? I was there for one year, and that was between, let me get this right, I came back from America the second time. That was 93 to 94. And what was the atmosphere in the place like then? Um, is it still Kelvin McKenzie then? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was a very, very brutal place to work in those days. I don't just mean the sun, I mean Fleet Street, okay? Fleet Street was, in those days, you know, the tabloid industry ruled because there wasn't a lot of uh, internet, there, there wasn't a lot of radio and TV readily available. Um, Sky had only just sort of come to fruition, if you see what I mean. So you still got most of the news from newspapers. They were immensely powerful and immensely profitable. Rupert Murdoch launched his Sky operation in this country basically on the daily profits of The Sun. If The Sun was selling 4 million copies a day and 10p of that was going into the Murdoch operation, you're looking at 400 grand a day, 2 million pounds a week, 3 million pounds a week for the news of the world. And, and that funded other operations. And so it became a cash cow. But then when um, the internet started growing and when... The expansion, which Murdoch was responsible for in broadcasting, came about. Power of newspapers started to decline. So prior to its decline, it was a very brutal place. People were broken by working in Fleet Street, particularly at the Sun, but also at places like the Mirror and the Daily Mail. They had a you know a very very strong and prominent editor as well, Paul Dacre, and a it did finish a lot of people off. A lot of people I know, believe it or not, ended up in the Priory from working in Fleet Street because the, the pressure to succeed was enormous and the brutality of some of the bosses was obscene in the way that you could never see behaviour like that in offices today because if you did, no executive would be in work anymore. It was completely unsustainable. 
Because, I mean, Calvin McKenzie is the man with the reputation. Mm. Are you telling me that it didn't matter which paper you're at, that's how it was? Well, yeah, McKenzie did have a reputation and it was fully justified. I mean, he was an extraordinarily energetic man with um, very little time for things that didn't work. And it, he didn't care why it didn't work. If it didn't work, he wasn't interested. But Paul Dacre was a very, very strong and ruthless man as well at the other end of the tabloid scale, you know, producing what you might call more upmarket type um, tabloid journalism. But in just the same way, people were broken at the mail because they didn't come up to standard. You know, only the very strongest got through and did it. But uh, although it's nothing to boast about these days, if you worked in that tabloid inferno when they were at the height of their powers in the 80s, it's something you'll never forget. Mike Parry's podcasts are called Planet Porky and Brazil and Porky. I'm Graham Mack. It's the Pod 20 on Podcast Radio. And we're up to number 11 on the countdown. And it's the Adam Carolla podcast featuring the rantings and ravings of American comedian Adam Carolla and his guests. Number 10, No Such Thing as a Fish. It's a podcast from the QI offices. The writers of QI discuss the best things they've found out this week. Number nine is the Joe Rogan experience. The American comedian Joe Rogan talks to interesting people about life and the state of the world. Before we get to the top eight, I want to give a nod to the journalist Piper Terrett. She's got a podcast out called The Lockdown Lowdown. Climbing the walls in lockdown, wondering where on earth you can get flour, meat or toilet roll? Want to know how to grow your apocalypse garden but have got no idea where to start? Then join me, Piper Terrett, for the Lockdown Lowdown with HappeningInHearts.com. It's a good podcast, especially if you live in Hertfordshire. If you've got a podcast that you make, even if it's just a local one for your area, let me know about it. You never know, it might feature on the podcast chart. Awareness is what it's all about and discovery. So send me the recommendations for your podcast to the podcastradio.co.uk. Thanks for sending that in, Piper. The lockdown lowdown. Have you had anything embarrassing happen during lockdown? Embarrassing? No. I got some news this week that can only be described as a roller coaster of emotion. Oh, no. There is a fine line between comedy and tragedy. And my family in Liverpool straddle that line quite regularly. To give you a bit of background, currently, I'm, shall we say, disconnected from my close family, my sister hates me and <laughs> in my mother's eyes my sister can do no wrong so oh, that's we have nothing to do with each other because anytime I've gone up there to, to have any time with either of them I've ended up getting quite hurt actually so I'm not disconnected you know to punish them or hurt them I'm disconnected just to protect me because it's not pleasant now, my dad died in June last year. He was cremated and I didn't go to the funeral because I knew my sister was going to be there and I didn't want anything to kick off because all the, the extended family would have been there. And there's really no words to describe the, the intensity of the hatred that my sister has for me. And, and, and I didn't want that to, to be the focus of the funeral. Yeah. My dad and I didn't have what you would call a, a father-son relationship. 
Oh. I never actually got the feeling that he even liked me, but <laughs> that's a different thing. Yeah. I never found him to be a, a particular uh, a role model. He was such a cheapskate. Really? Yeah. We weren't poor, but he would not spend money. Like, well, something, something as basic as, um, as school shoes. Uh, most kids had school shoes. Yeah. I had steel toe-capped work boots because he used to steal them from the site he worked on and that's what I went to school in. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. Um, that's awful. Yeah. A anyway, I mean, he would know the price of, of every... of the pint at, at, at every pub within a 10-mile radius and how much cheaper it was in the club that he went to, you know. Yeah. For my 40th birthday, we were living in Bournemouth at the time and... Uh, they came down to visit and we went out for lunch at Frankie and Benny's and he wouldn't order any food because the deal they were on in their hotel, they got a meal. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. So anyway, but my extended family are lovely mm. and I, I've never felt anything other than, than love and, and support and they're wonderful. Mm. And this week, I got an email from my favourite auntie, my mum's sister, my auntie Hazel in Liverpool. She emailed me to say that her brother, my uncle Brian in Scotland, had died. Oh, no. And I was really quite upset when, when I found out because I really, really liked Uncle Brian. Yeah. I mean, he really was someone. I mean, he was an ex-Navy man. He was, you know, generous, and I can remember playing football. He'd come down from Scotland every now and again. It was a real treat yeah. when he'd show, you know. I can remember playing football in the back garden with him when I was about five. And it's funny, I have no memory of have playing football in the back garden with my father. No. But Uncle Brian died, you know, and there were tears and, and all the rest of it. And it was good because I realized that, you know, I always wonder whether I'm normal. You know, I think that's the number one question a lot of people ask themselves is, am I normal? Yeah. When I found out that my dad had died, once again, it was also my Auntie Hazel that told me that my dad had died last June. I felt nothing. Like nothing. Not like, not anger or release or sadness or happiness. I actually, there was nothing. And at the time I was like, wow, there's something wrong with me. Your father dies. You're supposed to feel something. Really worried. Mm. And I Googled it and I found that kids who didn't have a proper relationship with their father, but always wanted one. Yeah. Desperately want, you desperately want love and approval from, from your father. Yeah. Especially a boy. Of course you do. It turns out that you've actually been mourning them your whole life. So when the moment comes that they die, you, you've, you're over, you've done it. You've been through it. Yeah. And I spoke to Dom Jolly about it on, on the podcast radio interview I did and, and he had a similar thing he said that he, he'd, he'd mourned him for 10 years before I think I'd mourned my dad for a lot longer than that so that made me feel okay and then when I realised I was upset about Uncle Brian going that yeah okay I'm normal <laughs> you know so that was a bit of relief there that you know I'm not a, a Vulcan you know <laughs> this uh, so so anyway none of us are normal Graham that, this is this is nobody's normal nobody's, nobody's normal, normal. No. so 
It's no such thing. So nobody's not. It forced me to reply to my Auntie Hazel to, to thank her for telling me and to let her know that, yeah, the message, I'd got the message. And I wrote some nice things about my Uncle Brian. You know, when I was a kid, I was into space. And I remember he took me to Jodrell Bank to see the radio telescope. And a funny story is we were, he lived on the, the island of Rothsay in Scotland, the Isle of Butte, yeah. Rothsay, the Isle of Butte in Scotland. And he used to run a cafe on the front there. Everybody in the town knew him. And we were out, it was day out, there's a, there's a main ferry, the Weems Bay Ferry, but there's another ferry way out on the, 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 the arse end of the island, I suppose. And uh, it's very rural at this other ferry. And we were there, I think we'd only gone there just to see the ferry. We weren't getting on it, we'd come across it. Anyway, so we're waiting there and it's, it's a rural Scottish island. Yeah. And there's a bloke rides up on a horse. I mean, this huge, beautiful brown horse. And I don't know. It was probably going on the ferry, the horse. I don't know. Yeah. Bloke rides up on a horse. And I'm standing there with Brian. And this other bloke starts walking towards us. And Brian says to me, he says, uh, this boy here, he's a, he's a really, really, really nice man. He said, but he's a bit simple. He's, uh, he's, he's touched. Yeah. But uh, he's a lovely fella. But I just thought I'd let you know. And I'm okay. And I'm like, you know, 12 years old at this, you know, yeah. but he's letting me in. This bloke comes up and he says, hi, Brian, how are you doing? You right? And then he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, fine, fine. He says, uh, that's a fine looking horse, that there. That's a, a beautiful horse. What breed of horse would that be, Brian? And without trying to be funny, with a total straight face, he turns to him and he goes, uh, I think that would be your... Um, that's your red setter. Uh. <laughs> and this fella goes, a red setter, is that a fact? Aye, well, it's a fine-looking red setter, so it is. <laughs> and I, I always wondered <laughs> whether this fella had, like, you know, later that day had been in his local pub or something, and he'd be talking to people, and they know he's a bit that way. Yeah, and he would have said, well, "I was at the ferry today, and a bloke rode by on a red setter." <laughs> but, but anyway, that was Brian. Now I've I, I've opened a, a dialogue with my auntie Hazel, my mum's sister, and Brian was her brother. You know, so yeah. I've opened this dialogue. She replied to my email with some details of what's been going on with my mum and my sister because you know I'm disconnected from them yeah and this sentence in particular jumped out she says your dad is still on the shelf at the undertakers because no one has paid the bill for the funeral what like I said fine line between tragedy and comedy yes now, my first thoughts were, oh, for goodness sake, you know, between my mum and my sister, you had the funeral, he's been cremated, for goodness sake, pay the bloody bill, right? Yes. My first emotion was, for goodness sake. Yes. Frustration. Yeah. In, he died like, it's nearly a year. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right? Yes. Oh, dear. This was last night I got this. Uh, so was, I go to bed and Julie said, I said, you won't believe this. <laughs> and Julie put it into perspective perfectly. She said, 
Well, it's what he would have wanted. He would have been so proud because he was such a cheap bugger <laughs> to think that he, that he got a free funeral at the very end. You know, like these, these people who are always late and you say, I bet they'll be late for their own funeral. Yeah. He was always cheap and I bet he ended up having a funeral that doesn't get... He actually wouldn't care that he's on the shelf and he'd be more bothered that somebody paid for it. A fitting tribute, I suppose. A fitting tribute to a cheap man. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh dear. Yeah. Yeah. So, Aww. like I say, roller coaster of emotions there. Yeah. It sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's podcast radio, and this is the Pod Twenty, the countdown of the top podcasts in the world right now, based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk We're up to number eight. Number eight is Happy Place from Fern Cotton. Fern's created a lovely safe place to talk about the power of love, kindness and positivity and taking care of your mental and physical health. Her latest guest is Ricky Gervais who is brilliant but Fern hardly ever gets a word in. It is good, though. That's a happy place from Fern Cotton. At number seven, WTF with Mark Maron. The American comedian Mark Maron has deep chats with celebrity guests, including a lot of other American comedians. Uh, one episode even featured the American president, Barack Obama. That was a little while ago. At number six, Thinking Out Loud, new podcast from Connie Hook, who you'll know from Blue Peter, and Liz Owens. They'll be my Zoom guests next week. Let's find out what podcast they've been listening to. Liz first. I love The Teacher's Pet, which is an Australian crime, and that's still very much ongoing. So I love that. And I also love Table Manners with Jessie Ware and her mum. Oh, and her mum cooks the meals and she, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've heard about that one, but I haven't actually listened to them yet. Oh, it's really good fun. Yeah, I really like The Guilty Feminist. I, I think it's really good fun and they always have a good mix of people on there. Okay. I, I quite like the Gen 4 News because it's funny and I get a fix of sort of what's going on in the week. I, I find since having kids, I never know what's sort of going on in the world. I feel like I'm in a bubble, which is kind of why we started this as well, didn't we, Liz? Because we felt that our brains had gone a bit numb and we weren't learning anymore. and so actually it's a really good way for us to sort of be working and learning in the process on any topic that we want the podcast is called thinking out loud thinking out loud yeah make sure you get it. how many have you done now so far well there's six in the series and two will be on air or whatever by the end of the series but yeah we've only recorded four in real life but we're going to do the other two remotely. Corona got in the way, annoyingly, but we can sort it out. Connie Hawk and Liz Owens, their new podcast is called Thinking Out Loud, and I'll be talking to them about it next week on the show because they are my Zoom guests. It's the Pod 20 on Podcast Radio, and we're into the top five podcasts based on downloads and your recommendations. At number five, it's Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's Lockdown Parenting Hell. Parenting? Just not as you know it. Number four, That Peter Crouch Podcast. Number three, good one this one, Catherine Ryan, Telling Everybody Everything. You've probably seen Catherine. She's a Canadian comedian. Uh, she usually shows up on panel shows. I saw her on an episode of The Chase the other day, and she was really funny. Anyway, she's got this podcast, which is 
thoroughly charming, engaging, it's fun. It's about her life, her kids, her dogs, everything. She replies to listeners' emails as kind of an agony ant, but without the agony. And one of the things she manages to do is just talk straight to you. A lot of podcasters have somebody in the studio with them, but Catherine talks directly to you and it's just so compelling. I mean, I'm not into kids. I think they make terrible pets. But Catherine did a whole thing about early potty training and it really was fascinating. So check that out if you can. It's number three this week. It's Catherine Ryan telling everybody everything. At number two, shagged, married, annoyed. The only way Rosie and Chris Ramsey, who are married, can have a conversation without being interrupted by a toddler is by doing a podcast. And that brings us to this week's number one. And for the second week running, it's Grounded by Louis Theroux. So well done, Louis. That's it for episode two of the Pod 20 on Podcast Radio. I'm Graham Mack, and thanks to this week's guest podcasters, Mike Parry, Dom Jolly, and Piper Terrett. Next week, it's Connie Hook and Liz Owens. And the week after that, it's Charlie Webster, who you've probably seen hosting all sorts of sports events on TV. She used to be an anchor on Sky Sports. She's also posed for FHM. And she's got a new podcast out called Undiscussable. Yeah, you know how it started was... I've been advising the government and then the domestic abuse bill was developed. And so I kept going in and talking about how I felt the system failed victims across the board. Now, when I'm talking about victims, I'm talking about women, I'm talking about men, I'm talking about people in the LGBTQ community, I'm talking about children, I'm talking about BAME, I'm talking about any ethnicity any gender, any sexual orientation and ability, it's really important that we talk about victims as a whole. And I was just getting ridiculously frustrated because I felt like people were speaking up and speaking about it, yet nobody was listening. And I mean, like, you know, they were hearing what I was saying, but they weren't listening. And then we saw the same thing happen over and over and over again. And you know what? We're seeing it right now, Graham, because nothing is changed and nothing is being done about it. At the moment, you know, we're currently in lockdown due to the coronavirus and deaths uh, to domestic abuse have doubled. Calls to helplines are around 50% more now. So this is something that hasn't changed. And so Undiscussed was born out of frustration and not feeling like people really understood what was going on. And I remember saying to a friend of mine who's also a child survivor of domestic abuse, what can I do? And she is a massive lover of podcasts. And she was like, well, you really should do a, a podcast. And I was like, oh yeah. And then I'm the type <laughs> of person that when I say I'm going to do something, I'm like a dog with a bone. It, I almost annoy myself. Like I'm that, I don't know, <laughs> tenacious with things and I can't let things go. So I just went in a complete mission to try and not just give victims and survivors a voice, but also to try and help the general public understand what domestic abuse is, why it affects everyone and how important it should be to everyone, but also to help people understand and to highlight how the government and the system is massively failing victims, survivors, children, our communities and our society. So that's how it started basically. And also the thing I realized was that 
I work with so many victims and survivors and they trust me and I can give them a, an opportunity to tell their story in a safe and trusted environment because I understand. Charlie Webster will be my guest in two weeks' time right here on The Pod 20. What's going to happen next week, though? I know that Connie Hook and Liz Owens will be talking about their podcast. And what will happen on the chart? Will Louis Theroux still be number one for a third week? Will Shagged, Married and Annoyed find happiness as well? Or will your favourite podcast be number one? You can influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.